Come this morning, we are nearing the end of the Gospel of John. Um, I I believe it it should be next week, but each week it is amazing to me that how the Gospel of John has been put together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and how this portion here that we're going to look at is not just kind of a random thing tacked down at the end, but really just what we need as we come to the end of John. So I'm, I'm praying that God will bring that home by his spirit to our hearts, and he will be glorified through that. We, uh, you know, uh, in a sense, I would, I would have liked to take last week and this week and next week and do it all in one sermon. And it, it, it is just too much to do, to do justice to it. Um, so I have to review a little, but I don't just have to review This really sets us up for what we come to this morning. So we saw last week that Peter was a man. Peter was a man of bold action. You really, if you want to do a character sketch or a character study of a man in the Bible, Peter is one that we have a good bit of information about. We don't have to just be inventive or fanciful. There's pretty clear evidence for the kind of man Peter was. He was a man of bold action. He was a forthright man who spoke his mind, honestly and clearly. And kind of along with those things, but neither of those things are bad. In fact, they can be very good. But it's also easy to see how along with those things went a sincere self-confidence in your handout. He had a sincere self-confidence. And he was in particular confident in the strength of his own devotion to Jesus. Sometimes it's difficult for us to distinguish between a strong devotion to Jesus and being self-confident in the strength of my own strong devotion to Jesus. Jesus said to the disciples, you will all fall away because of me tonight. Now that should be, a, I mean, when I, if, if Jesus says that to us, that should be a moment, right, where, where we immediately are saying, oh, And that kind of empties us. But for Peter, he responds, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And he was sincere in that. You know, sincerely wrong, but sincere. And I don't think that he was necessarily arrogant. There was a pride there. There was a pride that was sinful. But it wasn't an arrogance that was obvious. Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 13, well, first Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And it's all that self-confidence that Jesus challenges in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch? For one hour, and Jesus isn't just kind of rubbing something in again. He's not saying, look at you, Peter, you're such a failure. Peter is just, Jesus is challenging Peter to not be so self-confident. It's this self-confident spirit that was proved so empty when Peter denied Jesus three times. At the end of the day, whatever self-confidence we ever have, it will always not only come up short, but be proven completely vain. It did in Peter's case. It will always in ours. And so last week we saw the infinitely 
wise. And I say that not just for the fancy way of putting it, but I hope you remember what a, what a beautiful Savior we have and how perfectly he knows how to minister to where we are, each one of us individually. He knew where Peter was. He knew what Peter needed. And he knew how to do it. Not only did he know how, but we see his tenderness, his grace, and the way that he restores, fully restores and commissions Peter. So three times, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And three times, Peter, he responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. The common refrain in there really is you know. So there's no more self-confidence there. Peter's been stripped of that. But Jesus doesn't leave Peter to despair. He doesn't leave Peter to, so, to, to live in this world of being a failure. Jesus now reaches down to Peter, having, having totally failed, and he now lifts him up. This is what he does with us. Peter confesses his love for Jesus, while at the same time submitting that love to Jesus for his recognition and his validation. He's not like, I love you, Jesus. He's saying, yes, you know that I love you. It doesn't matter really what I know about myself. It only matters what you know about me. Yes, Lord, I do love you, but it doesn't matter in the end because uh, my love, the strength of my love, but I love you because in the face of my complete and total failure, you've still loved me. Three times. Jesus invited Peter, he invited him to publicly profess his love for and his devotion to Jesus. And this is something I had never seen before in this. Never really saw that, that Jesus was being so gracious in this. Because if you had failed like Peter did, are you going to be the one going out on the streets the next day publicly professing how loyal you are to Jesus? Like, you're the world's greatest failure now. So what you would never have dared or been so presumptuous to do, Jesus invites you to do. He gives you the platform to do. He calls you to do. When, Peter said, when Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? He, he was graciously, kindly giving to Peter the opportunity that he could never really have dreamed of having on his own. And after he did that, Jesus then commissioned Peter and bestowed on him the most sacred trust possible three times. Tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my sheep. Why did Jesus do that? I mean, again, that's craziness. Why do you give that, that stewardship, that responsibility to a man whose track record has just proven that he can fail at the most basic level, at the most ultimate level? Well, obviously the answer is not because Jesus saw something really great and special in Peter. How do we explain then why Jesus does this? At one level, it is his sovereign choice. How else can we explain it? At another level, we answer because Peter has come to see how unworthy and how unfit he is. Uh So at the same time, he's come to possess the only true worthiness for service in Christ's kingdom. Tend my sheep, Jesus said to Peter. And then he continues, 
in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. Now this is an interesting thing here. I've kind of always looked at this and said, I think Jesus could have said this a lot simpler, a lot quicker, a lot more clearly. And I always knew there must be a reason he doesn't. We're going to find out what that reason is this morning. The ESV and the NIV both say that, they translate it, you used to dress yourself. But the meaning is more precise than that. So the Greek verb, and again, I only bring in Greek when it's matter. It's really going to help us out. So the Greek verb to gird, to gird, is related to the noun. The, the verb is zonuo, and the noun is zone. So they, they sound the same. They're, they're morphologically like the same. And this, this noun generally refers to a kind of belt, or, or something that you wrap around you and tie around you, whether it's a rope or a sash or a belt of some kind. So if we wanted to bring out this connection that we see in the Greek between these two words, we could do it in the English with the words gird and girdle. And, you know, we can have ideas of girdle from more recent history, but if you look it up in the dictionary, girdle is a belt that you wrap around your waist. So, so... In a sense, most of us, many of us here, especially the men, are probably wearing girdles, right? Um, that's, what, that's what we mean by girdle in that case. So, to gird oneself, okay? Are you putting it together? To gird yourself, yes, it is in the Bible by extension to dress yourself. Why? Because when you gird yourself, it's the last step in getting dressed. But it specifically, therefore, includes the fastening or tying of one's belt as the final act in dressing. So Exodus 29, just to get again to get the picture, then you will bring forward Aaron's sons and you will clothe them with tunics and you will gird them with girdles or with belts. And Psalm 108, let his curse be to him like a garment with which he is clothed. So you've, you've got the garment with which you're clothed, and then like a girdle with which he girds himself. We know, of course, in Bible times they didn't wear pants. They wore these loose-fitting tunics or outer garments or robes. that They needed to be tied up. If you didn't tie up your garment, it's just going to be like a mess, right? It slows you down, it's cumbersome, it's awkward. So key, it wasn't you know, key to being dressed and fit for the activities of the day, was girding yourself. It helps us to make sense of what John says that Peter did when he heard that it was the Lord on the beach who had called to them. It says he girded on his outer garment and he cast himself into the sea. Now then, what we have here is, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. So Jesus is emphasizing not primarily getting dressed. He's not, when you were young, you used to get dressed. You used to put your own clothes on. He's emphasizing that final, you've got all your clothes on, and now you're securing your garments with that belt or girdle so that you have a greater ease in getting around to where you want to go, Peter. 
Peter girded himself in your handout in order that he might go where he wanted, that he might walk where he wished. Now, on its own, that's not a bad thing. But when we look at it in the context of Peter's life and the proverb, we'll see what's going on here. Because all this helps us to understand why Jesus uses this otherwise very strange figure of speech. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, wherever you wanted to go. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will gird you. Not someone else will dress you. Someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. I don't know if you can maybe already see that there's a play on words here. Usually when you're girded, you're girded around your waist. In this case, he's going to be girded around his wrists. So in the first half of the verse, we see this young Peter. We see this Peter who's, who's, who's going where he wants, when he wants, girding himself so that he can do it. In the second half, we see an older Peter. And he's not being girded by someone else because he's so old and decrepit. Right? He's being girded by someone else, not this time in the usual sense of having his outer garment secured, but rather in the sense of having his outstretched hands girded about with a cord or a rope and then being brought where he does not wish to go. You see this contrast. And where is Peter going to be taken? Where is he going to be brought? Because Jesus himself, at this point, doesn't say anymore. This is the last of Jesus' words. So what is Peter to make of this? Well, it's pretty, pretty clear. You could say, is he going to go into exile? Is he going to be brought into prison? Or is he going to death? And the tone of Jesus' words, it points not just to imprisonment, which could be temporary. He might be in prison for a time. Jesus is, Jesus is indicating the end of Peter's earthly life by, in your handout, execution and martyrdom. Now, I don't know if you've ever struggled when you read this, thinking, that's a real, and I don't mean this funny but, but I, li- quite literally, that's a real downer on my life now. Right? Because now I know, and there's something nice about not knowing. And about hoping and wishing and planning on it not being that way. So I wonder, what are we to do with this? What was Peter to do with this? What, what was he to make of it? What did he? We read in verse 19, Now this Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. We know that when it it says what kind of death, I'm not sure what it means, okay? We know Jesus was signifying at least a martyr's death. So in other words, Peter, you're not going to die just a normal death of old age or getting sick and dying You're going to die a martyr's death. Martyr being the word for witness or testimony. So you're going to die a confessor's death. You're going to die for the sake of my name. That much Peter understood. Peter got that. So he knew what Peter Jesus was saying. 
It's possible Jesus was signifying a martyr's death by crucifixion in particular. And that, even, even if Jesus was signifying that, I don't know if Peter would have got that at the time. He may have got it when it came about. He might have, when, he, when he was being led to the crucifixion, he might have looked back and remembered those words. Maybe he only got it then. But in this case, the picture would be probably of Peter's, Peter's hand being stretched out like this. Right. And tied to his own cross beam. Not nailed in this case, but tied as people were often when they were crucified. And then being made to carry his cross beam on his shoulders to the place of his own crucifixion. The place where he did not wish to go. Now at the time John is writing these words, Peter is almost assuredly already died. So when John writes this down and he says, now this Jesus said to signify the kind of death that Peter would die to glorify God. John's writing that and he's saying, yeah, and and it's happened and we saw it happened. We know that Peter suffered martyrdom under Nero by crucifixion. At least that is what the earliest tradition tells us. So when John writes the words, he's got 20-20 hindsight. And maybe he's assuming his readers had that too. By the way, the tradition that Peter requested to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die in the same manner Jesus died comes in the context of a very fanciful, other stuff is very highly suspect. So I see no reason to believe that or dismiss it. It's, It's rather worthless information, I think. Again, we can't be sure. Was Jesus talking about crucifixion specifically? Maybe. If he was, did Peter understand that at the time? We don't know. But what seems most significant, I would suggest to you, is this. It's not so much, when he says, you will stretch out your hands, it's not so much crucifixion. What seems most significant is that Jesus does not say, when you grow old, your hands will be stretched out. He says instead, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands. There's something about that. When you know the kind of man Peter is, and that he has been, the kind of just says, wow, that's not what I would expect from Peter. That doesn't even sound right, given Peter. Seems to be a picture of willing Submission of Peter, Peter being a man now who willingly stretches out his own hands and allows himself to be brought to a place he does not want to go. Now I think we can make sense of why Peter uses this figure of speech in the first place. In other words, why didn't he say, why didn't Jesus say more simply and more clearly, Peter, one day you will suffer death for the sake of my name. Maybe Jesus could have even said, one day, Peter, you will be crucified for the sake of my name. Why instead does Jesus use this very elaborate metaphor? Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself 
and walk wherever you wished. What do we hear in those words of the reference to Peter's previous self-determination, self-confidence? Peter, having his agenda, having the confidence of his devotion to God, and plowing ahead and going where he believed he ought to go. We see an example of that when in the garden he's girded on his sword. And he draws that sword and strikes the slave of the high priest and cuts off his ear. There's Peter. There's a picture of Peter in his youth. Girding himself, walking wherever he wished to go. And so often, again, you know, we, we have our agenda of where we wish to go, of where we plan to go, where we think we ought to go. And there's a self-confidence that accompanies that. There's a self-determination. And then Jesus, well, he, he was willing to lay down his life for Jesus. And I think we forget that sometimes. Sometimes we think, oh yeah, Peter, you thought you'd lay down for your life for Jesus. But yeah, you, you wouldn't. You found that out. But no, he would have. He would have laid down his life for Jesus if he could do it fighting. If he could do it with his sword. It's easier to die in battle, I suppose. At least it was for Peter. Than to go to the cross like Jesus goes. And Jesus told him, here Peter is willing to lay down his life for Jesus by fighting to the death. And Jesus tells him, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? What Peter couldn't get was this idea of willing suffering. Rather than dying the martyr's death in glory. right? And that's when all Peter's courage just abandoned him. It left him utterly. And he promptly failed miserably, denying Jesus three times. It was like, and if you can feel where Peter was, it was like the rug had literally been pulled right out from underneath him. He was willing to gird himself for hand-to-hand combat and lay down his life fighting for Jesus. But he was not willing to stretch out his own hands and have someone else gird him. He was not willing that someone else should bring him where he did not wish to go. That's Peter in his youth. But when Peter grows old, and the thing I think we can miss here is we can have this idea that Peter is, Jesus is only referring to something that's going to happen later when Peter's old. But the fact that this will happen when Peter is old tells you that he's already going to be that man before that he is in fact becoming that man now by the grace of God. When Peter grows old, Jesus says, then he will stretch out his own hand. Someone else will gird him and bring him where he does not wish to go. Now I ask you again, what do we do with that? Is that bad news? Does Does this just put a dark cloud over the rest of Peter's life? And if not, how, how, how do you get away from that? How do you escape that? How do we explain this? This isn't just a gloomy, morbid prediction of the kind of death Peter's going to die. 
It is, brothers and sisters, an assurance of the triumph Peter will win. And we have to be careful because, because there's this idea, of course, in the Islamic faith of jihad, right? Of, of the fact that you can win this glorious triumph by basically blowing yourself up or something like this. Now, in this case, the triumph Peter is going to win is not, is not just in being put to death by someone. That's not the triumph he wins. Right. The old Peter, who girded himself so he could go wherever he wished and who then denied Jesus three times, is replaced with the new Peter. And what's the new Peter? This is a man who willingly submits without resistance or violence to a martyr's death for Jesus' sake. I invite you to contemplate that kind of transformation. How do we account for it? The only possible answer we know is the powerful working of God who always completes in us the work that he begins. Jesus went out and chose Peter. He chose a self-confident Peter, a brash Peter, a Peter, a Peter who went where he want, when he wanted, who was self-determined. And then Peter worked in, Jesus worked in him and transforms him from a man who's willing to die with the sword, but as soon as that's taken away, he crumbles into the man now who will one day stretch out his own hands and go to a martyr's death. This is the work God can do in people. He changes us. He transforms us utterly. I was thinking about it. Well, I'm sure Peter remained at some level. Peter. I'm sure he, they still recognized Peter. He still had his ways. Um, he, I'm sure he was still a man of action and all of that. But at the end of the day, he was fundamentally changed. Whoever and whatever you are, whatever your weaknesses may be, never succumb to the idea that it can't be transformed. We see that in the life of Peter and in so many others in the scriptures. Remember the prayer of Jesus in Luke chapter 22. He said to Simon, 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 behold, Satan is demanded to sift you all like wheat. The Greek is plural there. And so it's interesting, again, look at what Jesus does. Jesus knows his disciples. Satan is demanded to sift you all like wheat, but he's talking to Simon. And he says, but I have prayed earnestly for you. Now it's singular. I've prayed it's not. It's not like he hasn't prayed for all the rest. But he knows that Simon has a unique need. I've prayed for you, Simon. And I've prayed for you because I know you're going to fail as the others are not. I know that in God's providence, he's going to put you in a position where where you can fail, as the others won't be put in the same position. And yet I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The words then in John here are not a gloomy prediction of the kind of death Peter will die, but an assurance of the ultimate triumph that Peter will win. 
as John points out, as he will glorify God even in his death. But again, it still seems like there's a downer in these words. Have we yet kind of grasped why I should feel so triumphant as a result of Jesus telling me this? How do I get there? One commentator writes, What is remarkable is that Peter lived and served three decades, uh, over three decades, with this prediction hanging over him. That's something I got. You got to give grace to commentators. They're writing big books, and they sometimes say things that maybe if they thought about it later, they wouldn't put it this way. But maybe they would, and I disagree. At one level. Now, at one level, I can understand what this commentator is saying. Peter did not take pleasure in the thought of suffering and death, and that's what gets us right. Well, was Peter now like? Yay, I can't wait to get to this martyrdom thing? Certainly not. It says, it says that he will be brought where he does what? He does not wish to go. There's nothing, nothing changes about the actual process of being killed and crucified for your faith that makes that something attractive in and of itself then you're going to need a pretty powerful antidote to turn away from despair to triumph. How does, how, how does this happen? At a purely human and fleshly level, this is a prediction that would hang over your head. And here's the thing. That old, self-confident, self-determined Peter, do you think he could have borne a prediction like this? No way. He would have caved under the pressure. He would have fallen into despair. He would have been paralyzed with fear. But this isn't the old Peter anymore. This is not the Peter. He he has been fundamentally transformed. This is not the Peter who girds himself so he can go where he wants. And so rather than being a prediction that hangs over his head, it's for him the assurance of his triumph. Let's again, I'm, I'm coming to why in a minute, but let's put this beautiful transformation together. Previously, Jesus foretold a self-confident Peter's failure. Peter, you will deny me three times. Now what is Jesus foretelling? What is Jesus foretelling now? He foretells something very different. A humbled Peter's triumph. You will glorify God by meekly dying a martyr's death. Put yourself in in Peter's sandals. Can you imagine the comforting assurance this must have been for Peter? And here's the key. Not the prospect of dying. Obviously not. But the promise. The promise. And the hope. Of persevering in faith of persevering in devotion to his Lord, even unto a martyr's death. It wasn't the martyr's death that thrilled Peter. It was the assurance and the promise of a faith that God was basically guaranteeing he was going to work in him so that he would be faithful even unto and in a martyr's death. 
again, distinguish. It is not the martyr's death that now Peter looks forward to. It is the promise and the hope of a faith that will persevere even to and through that martyr's death. Which then leads to this question, the question that, wow, I asked myself, what is it that comforts us uh, us most? So really seriously ask yourself this, what is it that comforts me more? Is it the hope of a life of ease? Of, of, or, or is it the hope of militantly going down in a blaze of glory? As maybe the case was for the old Peter. Or is it the promise and the hope of persevering in faith? Of persevering in devotion to our crucified and risen Lord, even in the midst of whatever sufferings may come. And again, the idea is not, there's not suddenly a love and a hope for sufferings to come. But no, I'm just asking, what is it that really comforts you? Is it the hope that things are going to go on as they always have, happy, smooth, and easy? Or is it the hope that if things should get bad, I'll get to go down in a blaze of glory militantly? Or is it the knowledge of the promise that the faith God has implanted in me and called forth from me will persevere and endure no matter what. It's Peter. And this is so wonderful. You know, in no other letter, in no other book of the Bible, is there more talk about suffering than in Peter's letter. It's Peter who will write some 30 years later, only, only a couple of years before his martyrdom. He will write of sufferings and trials resulting in the proof of our faith. You see, that was what was precious to Peter. What was precious to Peter was not the sufferings in themselves, but the faith that is revealed in the sufferings. The faith which is more precious than gold that perishes. Indeed, Peter says that it's this faith, even though tested by fire, that will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, again, what Peter found to be beautiful was the promise that his faith would endure. Because he must have been so shaken by his failure. What is it then that comforts us most? The hope of a life of ease, of militantly going down in a blaze of glory. And it's not to say that you won't have, comparatively, a life of ease the rest of your life. The point is not doomsday. Jesus has not told us what it's going to be. But nevertheless, we ought to ask ourselves, is it that that comforts us, or is it the promise and the hope of persevering in faith. So now we read in the second half of verse 19. And when Jesus had spoken this, he said to Peter, follow me. Follow me. So those introductory words. And when Jesus had spoken this, then he said to Peter, follow me. So you 
You do the work. Put it in perspective. Why, after just telling Peter, you're going to bring glory to God, he didn't say it in those, those exact words, but that was the idea, you're going to die a martyr's death. Because, because you're going to be transformed from that old self-confident man to, to a man who's willing to suffer and die for your Lord. Why then follow that up with these words? Peter, follow me. It's two reasons. Two reasons. One, it's on the basis of this assurance of ultimate triumph that Jesus now calls Peter to follow him. Think about it like this. What if Jesus just came to Peter and he said, Peter, do you love me? He said he did. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep, all this. Follow me, Peter. Peter's probably still thinking, oh, boy, hope I hope I do it this time. Right? Hope I do it. But what, is Peter, what has Jesus just done? He's revealed to Peter the work he's done in him that will persevere until the end. Now then, on the basis of that assurance that he has just given to Peter, now Jesus comes to Peter not with a word of pure law, but with a word of gospel. Peter, follow me. It's upon the ground of this assurance that Peter will persevere in faith and devotion even unto death. It's on that ground that Jesus now calls Peter to persevere in following him. Peter, you will persevere. One day you will stretch out your hands and be taken where you don't wish to go. Therefore, Peter, persevere in following me. And that's the beauty of the Christian faith, isn't it? That God does the work. And then in the midst of the work that God has done, he calls us to the work. And our work is always engaged in the context of the work that he has done, is doing, and will do. Whereas before, Peter's following partook of self-reliance and self-confidence. Now Peter's following is to be rooted only in faith and in God's saving and preserving grace. If you've got a following that's rooted in self-confidence, it's going to lead to arrogance and a fall and despair but a following of Jesus that's rooted in the preserving grace of God brings ultimate joy. So it's Peter who will write, Peter who writes some 30 years later to those who are residing as exiles in the world, you are protected by the power of God. Again, can you imagine what this meant to Peter? Peter wrote it to them, but he he knew it certainly for himself. You are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter knew he needed that protection. He knew it better than anyone else. But it was because he knew he was protected by the power of God that he could persevere. Self-reliance is replaced with full dependence on God. Self-dependence is replaced with trust in God's almighty power and all-sufficient grace. And brothers and sisters, we know Jesus prayed for Peter. And just like he prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail, we know he prays for you. And he prays for me. Remember, Remember what Jesus prayed in John 17. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. 
And I come to you, Holy Father. This is what he prayed for you. This is what he prayed for me. Keep them. Keep them in your name. That means not just keep them confessing, but keep them living lives of obedience and holiness. Keep them living lives of humility and confession of sin and repentance. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but I ask you, Holy Father, right, to keep them from the evil one. This is Jesus' own prayer for you. And so we can strive diligently to follow Jesus. Why? Because in your handout, knowing that it is God who assures the final outcome. Jesus assured Peter of the final outcome, and having assured him, he called him. Follow me. On the one hand, now, I said there's two reasons, right, that Jesus says, follow me, after what he just said about Peter's death. This is so important. On the one hand, it's upon the ground of this assurance of Peter's ultimate triumph that Jesus calls Peter to follow him. On the other hand, let's turn it around. Let's just turn it around the other way and say that it's Jesus' call to follow him that explains how the triumph is achieved. How, how does that work? Well, it goes like this. Before, what did Peter do? He girded himself and he walked wherever he wanted to go. Following a Jesus that he believed he could serve with his sword. Now, Peter is called to walk not wherever he wishes, but in the path Jesus himself has already walked, following in his footsteps. See, before Peter said, I want to go where I wish. Now Jesus says, no, I've walked a path, and I want you to walk in that path, following me. That's what Jesus means when he says here at the end of John's gospel. And really, he said at the beginning, he said to Philip, follow me. But the disciples didn't grasp what following Jesus would mean yet. Now at the end, Jesus says again, follow me. Follow me on the path that I have walked. The path that I myself have pioneered. And I say pioneered because the point is not that there was already a path kind of there and and Jesus just walked it as many others have. No, Jesus pioneered this path because Jesus is the first one who walked the path through suffering, through death, to resurrection, life, and glory. Follow me on that path. Remember this exchange between Peter and Jesus on the night of Jesus' betrayal, the night Peter would deny Jesus. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow later. When Jesus says now to Peter, follow me, 
it's not some romanticized idea. It, it, it's, it, it involves suffering. And yet, there's, there's, there's comfort, there's joy, there's hope. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you? Right now, I will lay down my life for you. I will fight to the death for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Implication, no, I will lay down my life for you, Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Why couldn't Peter follow Jesus then? Why couldn't he follow him then? Because he couldn't accept the fact that Jesus was walking on a path. See, if you follow Jesus, you have to follow him on the path that he's going on. And he couldn't accept the path that Jesus was going on a path of suffering. Determined to drink the cup the Father had given him to drink. But Peter will follow later. And how will he be able to follow later when he's come to see suffering in a different light? When he's come to understand the redeeming, saving power of Christ's sufferings for him and in his place. And that's what changes everything for Peter. Then Peter will follow Jesus. And again, brothers and sisters, we like the sound of following Jesus. You, you could write happy songs about that and feel good about that. But we must remember that following Jesus means following him on the path that he walked. Peter will follow him on the path he's already walked. Then Peter will be willing to stretch out his hands and go where he doesn't wish to go because while he will never wish for suffering and death, no one ever has, not even Jesus, he will rejoice to follow Jesus and to come in the end where he went and to share in the end in his resurrection life. Because the path Jesus pioneered is not just a path of suffering. It is a path that leads through suffering to life eternal to the resurrection. Which leads then to this question. And I think this is what strikes me is that for all the blessings and pleasures that God allows us and gives us to enjoy in this life, it does come down in the end to um, what is it that we are willing to die for? What is it that is most central to who I am? What is it that is, that is most fundamental and defining about me, about you? And we can answer that question when we answer this one. What is it that rejoices your heart and my heart more? Truly, actually, actually rejoices it. Makes, makes us, in a sense, happy, if we're going to use that kind of a word. A deep, true kind of happiness. Is it the hope of a life of ease, and, or militantly going down in a blaze of glory? Or is it this? The thought of following Jesus. On that path that he pioneered, coming then in the end where he has gone and sharing in the end in his resurrection life. It's Peter who writes some 30 years later, again, to those still residing as exiles in the world as we are today. 
If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you have been called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should what? You should follow in his steps. How could Peter not be thinking as he wrote that word of among Jesus' last words to him individually, follow me. To the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ. See, this is how Peter's been transformed. He sees sufferings in a whole new light now. He sees in them a fellowship with Christ, walking on the path that he walked so that he can come to where he's gone so he can share in his triumph. Therefore, keep on rejoicing to the degree you share his sufferings so that also at the revelation of his glory, he may rejoice with exultation. In your handout, the path that Jesus has pioneered is the same path he now walks with us by his Spirit, leading the way as we follow in his steps. And so it's those two simple words, follow me, which guarantee that the word about Peter's death is not at all a gloomy prediction hanging over his head. How can it be? How could that be? When Jesus goes on to say, follow me. Follow me. It is an assurance of ultimate triumph and of fellowship with Jesus all along the way. That's why some 30 years later, it's Peter who writes with such confidence and such peace. These words. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. As also our Lord Jesus Christ has indicated to me, and I will also be diligent. Peter doesn't succumb to to depression and despair and lose all his usefulness. No, all the more then, he says, I will be diligent that at any time after my departure, which he knows is going to be martyrdom, you will be able to call these things to mind. What a transformation God has worked in Peter's heart. May he do the same miraculous work in us, changing us, transforming us where he knows we need that work. And what I love then about the end of John's gospel, okay, it starts out with Jesus saying to Philip and the other disciples, follow me. And that looked to them like leaving their nets and going around after Jesus through Galilee and Judea. But it wasn't until Jesus had trailblazed the path of suffering to glory, that then he could, in a sense, truly call them to follow me in that fuller sense. And so here at the end of John's gospel, brothers and sisters, we have witnessed Christ. We have seen him in the path that he walked, the path he walked alone, right? He walked it really all ultimately alone. Now we come to the end of the gospel, and what does Jesus say? Having walked the path alone, he turns to Peter, but he also turns to all of us 
And he says to all of us now, now that he has walked that path alone, he says, now follow me. Follow me specifically on the path I walked, the path I have pioneered, which means, therefore, the path that leads now through suffering, through suffering and even death, to eternal life, to resurrection life and glory. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that these things are true. Thank you that these realities are the true realities. The ones that matter most, the ones that are eternal, that last forever, that are not temporal. And so, Lord, I pray that that we specifically, that we would also be those who, who, though perhaps before, were those who girded ourselves, that we might go where we wished, that we might be the kind who would stretch out our own hands, that others would gird them and take us where we don't wish to go. Lord, we pray that, that we are the, the people who, by your grace, have the assurance of a faith that perseveres. And that that persevering faith is indeed more precious than gold that perishes. And that it's by that faith and through that faith that you are protecting us for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Father, we pray that, that you would enable us to, to experience and know as surely as Peter did the triumph of a prediction like Jesus gave to him because of those two simple words that follow it, which put it all in context. Follow me. Let us do that, Lord, by your grace. Think of when Peter, Paul talked about the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. I pray that you would produce that in us. And Lord, in general, in, in all the ways that you know, as I'm, I've been so encouraged to see how you, the master physician and physician of souls, how you came to Peter knowing exactly where he was. You even you chose him, not for anything in himself, and then you transformed him and worked in him to make him one of, one of the preeminent among the apostles, as it were. What a work of grace. Do that work in us that we might be fit, worthy for your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to this table now which exemplifies for us the path Jesus walked and the path that he calls us to walk following him. We pray that you would enable us to partake of it with true thanksgiving and with the worthiness that you have provided us through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.